when from scratch cooking becomes hunting, gathering, fishing, and foraging on a fragile planet. That's what we're talking about today with filmmaker David Moscow. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 310. I had the great pleasure in connecting with filmmaker David Moscow recently. Uh, and I'm like, I know that face. And then, of course, I remembered him from the movie Big, which was one of mine and my sister's favorite films when we were kids. Um, he played the young uh, Tom Hanks. And uh, it was just so fantastic to see the work he's been doing since and now, uh, which is embarking upon a fantastic, meaningful journey of exploration, uh, looking at the concept of cooking from scratch through the lens of taking a dish that a chef makes in a beautiful restaurant and then how do we make that dish completely from scratch. Where do we go hunting? How do we fish? How do we forage? What kind of skills do we use to then recreate that dish? And he's created a a documentary that you can see uh, on various streaming services. Just Google. um, When when you look at the show notes, actually, that'll probably be the easiest because we've got it all there for you, lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And then you just click on the uh, show today. Um, and, uh, you also have the book that's just come out. So the book is called from scratch adventures in hunting, fishing, and foraging on a fragile planet. And it's a book that he co-wrote with his dad. Uh, so I'm going to share that story. Uh, David shares some of the fantastic stories from both filming the series and writing the book. And then we have a few philosophical chats around what it means to be a citizen today and, and how we do better by our health and the planet and what that looks like. And while lots of different people have different ideas, uh, and it's kind of hard to sometimes know what's right when so much of our messaging is very strongly uh, brought down to us uh, through corporate influence on politics. So I'm always very mindful of that. But what we talk about today really transcends all of that and gets us right back to basics, learning from people who are still very close to land and sea in terms of procuring their food and uh, gaining a deeper understanding of how we can uh, bring back that wisdom into modern food purveying and preparation. So it's a really beautiful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I have a couple of fantastic sponsor offers for you. Uh, one that is definitely very well suited to today's show with solid techniques back supporting us. Uh, thank you so much. It's such a fantastic brand. Mark Henry and his team are very clever at what they do. 
If you haven't heard of Solid Technics before, it's available globally. That's the good news, uh, although the offer is just for the Aussies. It's a multi-century cookware uh, creation philosophy. So when you buy that cast iron pan or that stainless steel tray, you will not just have this for a couple of years until the coating becomes scratchy and then it doesn't work anymore and then you have to buy something new. No. We have a situation where your descendants for centuries upon centuries are going to be still using this same cookware and the utensils that have just come out as well. So uh, I definitely urge you to take a look if this is something you're looking at. Uh, if you're thinking, oh, I just don't want my family to give me bad scented candles and uh, and high tox presents this year. Ask for a beautiful frying pan. Send the link. Unashamedly promote what you want so that we stop wasting a whole bunch of useless stuff in the gift-giving season and actually get what we need and use those gift-giving occasions to help us make the swaps we want to make, especially when it's stuff like cookware where it's a little more expensive, we're making an investment. This is the perfect time of year to make the most of an offer like this. So what's the offer? It is to spend $279 or more on any of the items in their range and receive a free 18 centimeter Oz iron pan worth just under $100. You've got this offer till the 18th of December. Your code is LOWTOX. Nice and simple, folks. Get amongst it. Uh, I actually did a great collab a couple of years ago with Mark. Uh, we produced um, a nickel-free stainless steel baking tray. Uh, so it's perfect for um, flatbreads, pizza, um, cookies, uh, things like that. And everything cooks evenly. There's no hot spots because of the way the tray conducts heat. It's so good. Uh, I, I really love it. And I know so many of you guys who've uh, bitten the bullet and gotten one love it too. My other just quick mention, the year is running out for your year-long discount to enjoy some of the, the not utensils, we're on to appliances now, from Oz Climate, our major sponsor this year. They've been giving you 10% off all year round of their already discounted prices, ozclimate.com.au. You, all you have to do is enter the code LOTOXLIFE on the checkout to get that 10%. And they have the best air purifiers and dehumidifiers that I know. We use them here. We love them. Uh, the little compact... Uh, four-stage air purifiers for the bedroom are fantastic and they actually look gorgeous. Uh, or if you need something a little bit more heavy-duty, a little bit bigger, uh, maybe you live near agricultural chemicals or in a bushfire risk zone uh, or in the city where there's a lot of pollution, you're near a main street or on a main street. All of those reasons are why you might want to think about a really good quality large five-stage HEPA filter. Uh, and then, of course, if you're on the East Coast, we know what it feels like now to have three La Nina systems in a row, and it is wet and it is humid. And one of the number one ways to prevent mold growing in the home if you don't have otherwise water damage issues, which is always a good idea to rule out, is 
to keep the humidity low, below 60%. The dehumidifiers in the range are fantastic. Uh, we run a little compact unit between our kit, our bathroom and laundry to keep those from ever growing mold. We just don't have mold grow in those spaces anymore because we have a preventative strategy. After the family showers, it gets switched on for a couple of hours, keeps everything bone dry. No more DMs in my Insta DMs about how do I clean the mold? Uh, get on top of it once, regrout, re-silicone, and then prevent it from ever happening again by getting a DM humidifier. Same deal goes within your bedrooms, in your walk-in closets, keeping that humidity down, rotating a couple of dehumidifiers through the home is a great idea. That's it from me, folks. I hope you enjoy this gorgeous conversation with David Moscow about cooking from scratch. Hello, David. How are you? I'm good. I am I am good How too. Yeah, yeah, I'm really good. <laughs> no, sorry. I was going to ask. You just had to give me just a little space. I'll get in there. <laughs> that it's would early be, where you are. It's yeah, early that, where you are. That would be my time, uh, yeah. my time slot, um, reflecting on my uh, my lack of timing. There you go. You, you're in the future. So the fact that we're even talking is is huge. It's Thursday here. It's Friday where you are. Yes, that's right. And um, it's funny actually having that conversation because my earliest memory of you as a human is of the movie Big and, uh, and you know, that's all about what, what's happening in the future in the past. So uh, I'm very curious, given you're an actor uh, and a director and a producer, uh, we can often be quite removed from reality just in living in that bubble and life of alternate reality, literally creating alternate realities nonstop. Um, and I feel like our food system is kind of in the same place right now. We're in this weird alternate reality where we're being told like planet friendly and this and that looks like this. And it's some weird processed protein nugget in a packet that's been made from ingredients oh, yeah. from 10 different countries and flown around the world and wow i saw a very interesting a cool uh it was some farmer talking and he was like if people didn't eat it 100 years ago don't eat it and i was yeah. like oh that's really interesting that's a, a very succinct way to say a lot of what i am i wrote about in this book the reason why we're talking yeah um, i think that uh <clears throat> you know once food became more than sustenance, once it became an economic driver, um, then a lot of wild stuff starts happening, right? There, there was, it was kind of, I, I had a conversation with, um, uh, I was, I did some research into factory farming that goes into my book. And the first factory farm came about as a mistake. There was a woman in, I think, Kansas, who was ordering like 50 chicks, chicken for her garden and farm. And they sent 5,000 chicks. Ooh. It was in like 1957. Uh -huh. And rather than return them, she was like, can I bring them in to my house in the winter? And they made it through the winter. Wow. And then she ordered another 5,000 the next spring. So the, the, the whole sort of like factory farming kind of came about as a mistake and we've never sort of looked at that. I mean, there are people who look at it, um, but sort of uh, uh, economically sort of big business sense of it has not looked at 
is this a big mistake, right? Um, drawing, uh, uh, you know, local farms um, and, and concentrating where the food is made, where the money goes is extremely disruptive. And, we, and I saw that again and again um, around the world. When food is like this incredible, food production is like this incredible onion that you, yeah. once you start peeling it, it's like, it is. okay, it, you talk about community, you talk about culture, you talk about the environment, you talk about economics, um, because it's such a necessity, you can't get away from it. So. Yeah, that's it. And so as a kid, what was food for you? Like, were you, did you have hippie parents who kind of showed you how it should be? Or were you eating the Cheerios and uh, wanting the brightly colored Fruit Loops like the rest of us in the 80s? No, no, I had I had the hippie parents, but I was also I was in the Bronx, which is like basically mm. you could get anything you want as long as it was fried, right? It was like <laughs> and and yet my parents did a food co-op there. Um and my mom was she's an amazing cook and, and very health conscious. Mm -hmm. Um now at the time, health consciousness looked different than today, right? Like today we have paleo and and there it was uh, low fat, right? So yeah, uh, yeah, we all went. So that was that the big too. thing right then, and mm. so it was a little bit more sugar and 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 less fat than I think my diet is today. Um, but <clears throat> sort of that consciousness, that food consciousness that I had through my mom or her consciousness, disappeared when I left the house. Then it was sort of like me on my own and. I stop in and get whatever I want, take it out of the paper bag, unwrap it and eat it. Or I go to the grocery store and everything's wrapped in plastic and I don't really have any connection to where the food comes from. Mm. I mean, as a kid, you go in the States and I don't know if you do this in Australia, but you go apple picking, you get pumpkins around Halloween, like uh, you go fishing. And so there is a, there's a much more of a connective tissue with where food comes from and your relationship than when you are in New York and LA working in the business and you just don't think about it anymore. It becomes unconscious consumption to the point that I think for a lot of Americans, um, you're not really thinking about what you're putting into your body. Um, and it becomes, it fills a lot of holes. It fills emotional holes. It fills uh, chemical holes. Um, and and the and the world that we're in is pushing you to consume, right? Like, I don't know that you see ads and they're saying second dinner, second breakfast. You're just like, what is going on? <laughs> no one needs. If no you need a second breakfast, you're eating a wrong first breakfast. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But they don't care. They don't no. care about you know whether or not you're going to be, this is a healthy choice for you. They're just like, they have a machine that's going and they really don't want you to take a step back. Well, um, no. And that person is sitting with their boss in their yearly review, going over their KPIs. And part of those targets is growth because we're all engineered into this system of growth that we kind of, we're kind of like hamsters on a wheel that's going too fast and no one quite knows how to get off successfully. Um, the idea that yeah. everything has to be like GDP is insane mm, and that you can't, 
you can't add in sort of like environmental damage, right? Mm. That should be part of the the GDP. The, the, you the know? success uh, metric, exactly. Whether the com whether the country is happy, is your community mm. happy? The happiness scale should be integrated into all of this. Um, but no, there it's full steam ahead, and uh, and you see. So I was in the Philippines, and in the book, which I co-wrote with my dad. Uh, he's a writer on my television show that's of the same name from scratch. And I go meet chefs. They make me a meal. I then harvest, forage, gather, hunt every ingredient, fish every ingredient, come back and try and reproduce the meal. So I, I see how the meals are made. And then I walk back the ingredients all the way to the ground. Um, so you get a really interesting picture of sort of food production soup to nuts. And I was in the Philippines. This is just talking about overconsumption. Um, and, and we were making uh, kilowin, which is like a Filipino ceviche. And I have patis, which is a Filipino fish sauce. It's like a foundational ingredient in Philippine cuisine. We're out getting um, shad, I think was the fish, on a, on a banca, which is like those um, boats that have the two, uh, what are they called? Outriggers kind of, right? Oh yeah. 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 yeah like and, a catamaran kind of thing. Well, no, it's, it's the middle canoe with the two legs that go off the sides, right? Yes. I've got the picture. Mm -hmm. So this, this boat is the same design that the Austronesians came, arrived in thousands of years ago. Um, except they've now not in a good way, just made it bigger. So when mm -hmm. it's small, it's a very, um, it's a good boat. When they make it big, it's not stable. And in fact, it's scary. Mm -hmm. and, and fishermen, uh, fishing is the most dangerous profession in the world. About 26,000 fishermen die every year. So Wow, I did not know that. Think about when you're eating yeah. food, um, there are some brave souls out there getting it for you. So anyway, we're out in this banca in the South China Sea. It's scary. There's a storm on the horizon. This boat is rickety. I'm like, this is insane. <laughs> and China um, had is expanding its territory in the South China Sea. The, the, Philipp the Philippines calls it the Philippine Sea, and China calls it the South China Sea. And they're expanding their territory. They're building islands. Um, and they had just killed two Filipino fishermen a couple of weeks before. So... We're out there and we don't get any fish. And so for the show, I'm like, oh my goodness, we didn't get any fish. What are we gonna do? But for the world, that, that, was, that was certainly like, what, what happened here? And that was sort of unraveling the onion. And that was the first step towards writing a book about it because what we figured out in further research, and this didn't make the show because cable TV in America, that's not really the, the forum for this, but, it turns out that the South China Sea, which has one third of the fishing boats in the whole world, um, has lost 70% of its fish in the last 20 years. And basically 90% of the fish in the last 50 years. So there's all this territorial dispute going on. China saying this is ours, Philippines saying there's eight countries really you know, fighting there for fish. It's not for ocean real estate, no. it's for fish. And yeah. yet the fish are going to disappear. So unless 
consumption, unless they all agree, reach across their territorial differences and say, I know you think this is yours and I think it's mine, but what we're fighting for is going to go away mm -hmm. unless we figure out something. Um, and that happens all over the place. There are some really good things. You, you, you run into Costa Rica's doing amazing stuff. Iceland's doing some good stuff. Finland's doing some good stuff. And I think that, you know, if countries like America can be humble and look at what some of these other places are doing that work, um, we have a shot. Humanity has a shot, right? Yeah. That's, and that's it's, a, it's about the overlaps, isn't it? We work from silos and we really need to work from overlaps. Yep. We're all connected out here. Mm -hmm. um, and that ocean is, we all share the same ocean. It's not like this is ours. They don't see, just don't see the boundaries that we put up these. Um, so, so that was, that began the journey into a book because there were questions that sort of started to come up that um, were too big for a, a 40 minute uh, show on history channel or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I reached out to my dad and said, Hey, would you write this with me? And, uh, and he said, yes, which was really cool. How special was that to work together? Have you, all, have you ever worked together on a project other than from scratch um, before? We, we had written a script together um, that had gotten optioned that has been optioned. And so we sort of got the kinks out there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> because <laughs> uh, you have to step out of the father-son relationship it has to you be do two, two creative people so we we got rid of that in in the first round and then um yeah when i went to him uh he was like he was worried if it would be a good book and i was worried if we would finish it and we did and it's good i think i mean so both of us were very happy and it was lovely to have the excuse to call my dad every day and have a um, a project to work with. He lives in, in, on the East coast and I live in the West coast. So we don't see each other as often as we can. And this was a <clears throat> amazing excuse to, to bond over a project. Yeah. Know? I can imagine. Uh, and I think as we get older, those things become more and more important, right? Yeah. 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 I, I, he's in his seventies. So this is, it's cool. This is great. And, and this is what I always wanted, you know, like I, I, and I think my dad hoped for the same thing, like that I would, that we would find something to work together. He's a grant writer. So that's not really my, <laughs> I'm, I can't, I can't be a grant writer and he doesn't really want to, you know, uh, be a host on a television show. So this is a, a nice medium. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And can you tell me like, what, what were you seeing on a personal visceral level that called you to do this work, to called you to explore. Like I know it sounds like a, a good concept for a TV show uh, to, to reverse engineer a chef's dinner and try and recreate it uh, from your own foraging and growing. I, I love it. I mean, you know, it really illustrates uh, the point it's, of it's how It's a fun precious. thing for me, but what, right? Yeah, but what what made you really feel like the world needed to see this? There must have been something really personal there. So there, uh, America has been going through like political shifts, and a lot of that comes down on um, immigrants. 
Mm. And here, immigrants are the backbone of the restaurant industry, the food industry, uh, particularly Mexican and Central American. And it seemed idiotic um, that we were going after our friends, our neighbors, our family members, the people who give us sustenance, mm. uh, who gave us the taco, who mm. gave us the margarita. Like well, who, who pick the oranges, uh, you know, who like pick the every, oranges. Yeah. And w- when most Americans are not willing to right? like, um, and yet uh, half of the country thinks they should be kicked out. So I thought <clears throat> I love, I love ethnic food. And a lot of people, even if they have political issues with immigrants, they love Mexican food. They love Indian food and Thai food and Italian food. And I so I thought that this would be a cool way to let's explore the hard work that goes behind food production. Mm-hmm. And let's go down to Mexico and work with, you know, a Oaxacan subsistence farmer making masa for tortillas for a taco and let's harvest agave and make tequila, right? Margaritas are the number one cocktail in America. Tacos are the third most consumed food. Let's show the behind the scenes. And and I think that <clears throat> people, um, it's undeniable sort of the hard work that mm. goes on, right? Yeah, it is. And it's like, I want the oranges and the tacos and the margaritas. I don't want to live next to the family who, who, who made all that happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, we all have our political blind spots, right? And what I think is really special about this uh, show and book is just calling on people to put it all aside and, again, reach for those overlaps. Like we, Community. We all, yeah, yeah, Community. And and to see the function of all the parts of that community working beautifully. And so finding gratitude for people instead of seeing them as the other uh, yeah. is, is really important. The more distant we become from our food, the harder it is to see those people, right? Yeah. Like now that we get our food, uh, our meat wrapped in plastic in a supermarket, A, we don't recognize that we've killed an animal for this. I am in my 40s. <clears throat> we did sort of a thumbnail sketch of if I ate two meals that had meat in them per day since I was a kid, I would have killed 35,000 animals, which is an incredible amount. Like, holy smokes. And that doesn't include big Italian subs with lots of cold cuts on it or the all you can eat Vegas buffet. Like, this is. The bare bones, it doesn't include the products that beef finds its way into or whatever, right? So, wow. Okay, so if I'm going to eat animals, I need to confront what killing animals is. So I need to go slaughter animals and eat them and see how that will affect my eating, my habits, right? Well, and that is was that confusing, though, because of the emotional emotionality we've brought to the food system the the guilt of eating an animal when it is honestly one of the most natural things in the world and the only reason we have brains the size we do today so i find that must have been an interesting yeah i want to ask you that is the rub right there i like eating meat 
I like eating meat. I'm going to continue to eat meat. My my food culture, the people I sit with in my kitchen, my family, we eat meat. To I, look, I think vegans are incredibly brave. They are standing up for their ethics and removing themselves from a family community, most likely a larger mm. community. They're the ones that call up and say, "Hey, you need to cook me something special at my at your party." Like that's brave. It is, um, and going against what your community does, uh, going against the grain, as Brene Brown has said from the research, is the single hardest thing a human can do. It is. It's yeah. it's it's super hard. So I think, but but I'm not. My issue is not with the slaughter of animals and eating them because people have been doing that for thousands of millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And so my issue is how uh, the conditions that the animals are raised in, the conditions of the people who work uh, to, to bring this food to our table. So <clears throat> it's, and then, and then environmental issues that go along with sort of like overconsumption. Those are my big issues around uh, uh, eating meat. Um, but I had to come face to face, like the generation before me, my mom's generation, or even prior to her, uh, she went into a butcher store and saw an animal hanging there. And, and, you know, they bought the chicken that way. Or as a kid, she killed her own food, right? I've been in a bubble. I've been in a bubble and people like it that way. That's why we've moved further away from having butcher shops that show the animal, right? That's why people, because people don't want to kill, you know, piglet. They don't want to kill babe. They don't want to kill whatever, you know, we've, we've, uh, Disney, the Disneyfication of animals has affected us and it's just removed this important part of us being humans to the point that we are now doing damage because we pretend it doesn't exist. People get more mad at me about showing animal slaughter on my show and talking about it in my book than themselves for eating the same animal. It's a very strange, you know, uh, uh, hypocritical thing that's going on. In So I came face to face with <clears throat> slaughtering a cow in Texas. Uh, I went on a boar hunt in, in Texas as well. That was, that's in the chapter. Um, and there are things that, you know, we want, we want it to be all sterilized and clean the story around food. So I went on a, on a wild boar hunt and <sighs> so Tell me about it, David. In spring, what? yeah. In spring, uh, uh, sows mm -hmm. have either piglets or they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So we went on a hunt, and at the time, I was going to make this amazing pork chicharron taco. Going to use the belly of the pig, and it's at this amazing chef out here, Ray Garcia. Uh, his restaurant was called um, <clears throat> Broken Spanish, and and I was making a margarita. And so my the hunter said, listen, you know, winter's just ended. You're not going to get very many fat pigs um, because they've just come out. You know, there hasn't been food for a while. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to get the fattest pig. I don't believe <laughs> it. Because we were using pork belly. So we needed a fat pig. And <clears throat> I had this, you have to read the book for the sort of details. It was like a last minute. We didn't think we were going to be able to get it. The sun was going down. I'm in a blind. It's, we see a pig at the way edge of the forest. I had never shot anything before in my life. So I have no skill at this. And I managed. Oh, wow. So this is literally the first time you shoot from a gun? Yep. Aha. Uh-huh. And I and I managed to hit the pig, uh, uh, the boar. And I walk across. And while I'm doing it, like, I'm looking through a scope. So it feels very like a video game almost, right? Like, I just have to accomplish this thing. I'm not, it's not an animal at that point. I'm like stressed because we have to do this for the show. <clears throat> the minute I walk out of the blind, I start walking towards her. Then it hits me and she's crossed the field. She's snorting blood. And um, so I, I have to finish her off and me and the hunter, the guy pick her up. And uh, I notice she's got a really big belly. And I'm like, this is amazing. I found my fat pig. And then I noticed the teats and she wasn't. So, so that's just the thing. I never knew. I never knew that when you're hunting in the spring, you can be hunting for pregnant or mama animals. So that gives you like, oh my gosh, what do you do with that? Right. And, or then you talk about sort of dairy production, right? I heard this comedian who who says milk production comes from when they take the baby away from the mother and the mother keeps producing milk and then we put it in a in a bo- in a in a carton and we put our missing kids on the back of that carton and you're just like holy smokes this is the sort of like weird how we've twisted ourselves into this you know to, to it's deniability. And so I think it is extremely important if you are going to eat meat that you must remember that this is an animal. And if that means that you need to go out and harvest animals in order to maintain that sort of not stick your head in the sand about what's yeah. going on. And a humility and a gratitude, like at a very deep level. Yeah. Because the first thing that happened is I stopped eating as much meat as I was. I was like, it didn't matter. I was having big steaks at every meal. Like it was the center of every meal I was having. And mm. now I don't have it a lot of meals, right? And 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 it moves to the side, it moves to the appetizer sometimes, right? And And that's a good thing. And then I also only purchase, I try to only purchase meat from places that raise their animals humanely and pay their workers a living wage. Mm. And that hurts my wallet. Mm. But I think everyone who can afford to, because there is a question of privilege around that too, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone who can afford Mm. to needs to. It's a duty, I see it as. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, But then we can't chastise or judge the family who needs to get the on special beef mints at the lowest price possible because that is literally the cheapest and best way to get B vitamins into their small children who are growing. Like the system sucks, yes, but there's a reality of like we talk about a just transition with energy, we need to talk about a just transition with food as well. I think that, yes, you are correct, that it's a mess. Mm. But 
I'm looking at a culture in the United States where everybody is consuming so much. Mm. They are overweight. They are so many health problems are coming from just over thoughtless consumption. Right. Yeah. So if, if there are roadblocks, you know, you go back to the seventies and sixties, fifties, and people did not look like this. No, they Um, did not. Well, and we didn't have 60% of our shopping trolleys full of ultra processed food. That's really, that's really it. You know, Mm. they're selling us pretty pictures on the side of a box as well. And none of what's inside is, you know, so I think that, you know, but this goes hand in hand with that conscious consumption, thinking about what you're putting into your body, um, not being pushed to mindlessly buy and eat, uh, is is a good place to start and if you give yourself these rules where you only eat meat a couple times a week and you buy it from places that pay their workers well treat their treat the animals correctly you're doing not only is good for your body but good for the planet and good for the community good for the people who you know uh, uh um are bringing food to our table. Um, and so that's what I've, that's what I've tried to start leaning into. I, you know, what's wild is that <clears throat> my kid came with me on a lot of these journeys. He, he fished for, for uh, trout with me in Finland. He um, was in Costa Rica with me, uh, uh, harvesting bananas and all kinds of fruits. He was in Italy and <clears throat> he is, does not want to eat meat, which is wild. So I have like, he's vegetarian. He's eating eggs and dairy. But at the table, he is saying no, because he reads all these books. I mean, he's four, so he's reading about animals. Like that's that's what most of the books are about for four-year-olds. And then he turns around, he's like, wait a minute, what? You want me to eat this? <laughs> My so, little guy went through the same thing. Yeah. It's, mm. and, and, and we... We get so far away from that, which is, um, which is so strange. I mean, the world steps in, and your job steps in, and the commute steps in, and all this other stuff steps in, and, and you stop thinking about these things that, you know, food nourishment through food is arguably the most important thing that we have in our lives, right? And breathing and water and food and mm. shelter, and, but that's it. There's top three things, right? Food is right there. And yet we, we put it on the back burner. Um, it's the least, it's the thing we think least about for many of us. Um, and that's what I was like, when I came into this, uh, Mm. this journey. And so you mentioned Finland and we look to Finland on like quite, quite often from an education perspective, from a societal equality perspective, uh, it's a country that's often cited as doing a better job than the other, job. than Anglo-Saxon countries. Um, tell me what you saw there that really blew you away from the food perspective. So we actually, you know, following what you were just talking about, we our episode was I had always heard that Finland was the uh, happiest country and most best educated country. And so I wondered if their food production or their relationship with food had anything to do with this mm-hmm. and so that's what the investigation was there <clears throat> and, and um what was the chef meal oh my goodness it, it was nordic um yari is like ridiculously 
incredible chef. And so we did, uh, it was fish. We did a uh, pipe perch and a, um, oh, it was, it was horseradish uh, milk droplets on a pike perch. And then he made a, a pine needle ice cream with wild strawberries and um, honey. And it was, it all basically came from the woods and streams. That was what he was doing. And that's actually how a lot of Finns eat. So they have societally, um, they have a lot of time off and they spend a lot of that time off in the woods or fishing. So interacting with nature um, and, and with their families. Um, they, there are free lunches uh, every day of the year in city parks that are traditional Finnish foods. And they do this because they think that hungry kids are not going to be able to concentrate in school. Um, and, and moms that have to spend all day cooking three meals a day um, uh, are, are going to have a better life if one of those meals is shared in the community at the local park. So we went to a local park with my four-year-old and they have a big cauldron with a stew that the doctors in Finland, this is one of the traditional meals that they feel is healthy. And, um, and they're not like pandering to whatever big business wants to sell their sloppy dough, right? Or their pizza. Um, and all the kids line up with their bowls and their ladled food. And then they go out and play together. Um, so it brings the community together. It reinforces tradition. Um, and then <clears throat> there's a neat thing um, that are the chapter on Finland is also about mushrooms um, because mushrooming is a huge thing in Finland um, and Russia and a lot of the Eastern European countries, uh, Northern, Northeastern countries. Um, and what's neat about it is that in other places in the winter, you know, when the rains come and it gets gray and cold, uh, a lot of people get depressed and stay inside. In Finland, they're like, mushrooms are here. Let's go out and get some mushrooms. And so that connectivity <clears throat> with the earth and finding sustenance, you know, from nature um, shows them how important nature is, right? So, so they have a lot of forest. Now, I will say that um, a lot of it's manicured forests, so they, it's not perfect, right? They, they harvested and then planted rows of trees, and is that a forest? But they're changing. They realized that 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 was not good, um, and that they're now allowing forests to grow back naturally. Um, and Finland has an incredible, you know, it is an industrialized nation like America, but they've gone down this this other path. Um, and, and historically, it's interesting. So we, do, we dove into how they got here because a couple of generations ago, they were extremely poor. They were like basically a third world country, whatever that means. And they had, you know, after World War II, they owed reparations to the Soviet Union and they and, and the Soviet Union um there was a leader, the Finnish leader actually did a, a, an interesting job of sort of like walking this tightrope where, yes, he was going to 
repay the Soviet Union, but no, they wouldn't take Finland. And that was his sort of, he, um, he managed that. And when they were able to, uh, you know, in building the infrastructure to repay Soviet Union with tanks and military weapons, they basically build up this huge tech industry. So suddenly in 1970, when they had repaid the Soviets everything back, they suddenly had a huge infrastructure to become, you know, an industrialized, wealthy nation. And immediately everyone started dying of heart disease because the men were dying at age 50 there because they were having sausages with every meal, big fatty, they, they, there was no limit to what they were consuming because they now had money and they, they've been dreaming about this time for years. And it looked very similar to like what America looks like. <clears throat> then when the report came out that showed that Finnish men were dying, the country, you know, the, there's another thing. The Finns are very, very um, tight culturally. So like even in America, you'll meet a Finnish person three generations later and they still speak Finnish. So it's kind of cool. Um, so they got together and said, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? And they changed their eating habits, like as a country. Um, and they were able to, you know, uh, um, to get this through. Uh, you know, the common good was more important than sort of the, the GDP. <laughs> yeah. No, um, but that's it. That is exactly it. And that is why they are successful in so many aspects because they broadened the success metric of what a successful society looks like. It's not right. just about GDP. In fact, if you make it about GDP, well, the let's just look at America and, and see what's going on there. And it's not great. It's very true. Very true. Mm. And there are things to, I mean, um, Iceland is another place where they, uh, they emptied out their ocean um, I think it was Haddock and then um, and then they were doing the same to cod in the 80s and they realized that this was not a good a good way to go and so they instituted um, basically permits everybody man woman child company had permits and limited the catch um, and now the cod is back and the Haddock is back and it's a great example of something that worked it, it is also complicated, just in the same way that, you know, Finland hurt their forests. <clears throat> Iceland basically turned these permits into almost like a stock market. You could mortgage houses against them and, and sell them. And, and in essence, the permits collected uh, with a small group of very wealthy families. I think it's like eight families own all the fishing rights in Iceland. And what that's meant economically is that all these little fishing villages have died and everyone has moved into Reykjavik and it's caused a lot of uh, uh, anger. And in fact, they redid their constitution after the economic collapse, um, the last one in 08. And, um, and they, in the new constitution, everyone voted to redistribute that basically fish stocks would become nationally owned and they have uh, declined to institute the new constitution since they voted for that. It's been like six years and it's wow. because families 
Do the families have a hold over the government at all? Is there powerful, wealthy families? Well, and then we look at that pocketing happening all over the world now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we are the concentrations of wealth and, and these people who can kind of control our daily lives and force us into Mm. servitude in some way. Um, that may be a strong word for it, but <laughs> or eight dollars a month on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The topic du jour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but they are they want us to do what they want mm-hmm. us. They they want to define our lives, right? They want they want to control our lives so they can make money. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and you see it even in the I mean, Iceland is a very they do a very good job comparatively to a lot of countries, but even there, you can't get away from greed. Mm, you can't and I remember being a kid I loved American movies as a kid and I'm I'm now remembering uh Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin in big business and mergers and acquisitions and like all of that and as a kid I just thought they were hilarious that's that's all I was thinking about when I watched those movies but that that ability to just merge buy up get as big as you want with no yeah, with no ceiling. I mean, right. it's insane that no one saw that that was going to lead to a not such a great place. There's interesting um, sort of political theory where, and it, and I think it, it works for America. I don't know if you could say the same thing about Australia, but the people who came here and decimated the Native Americans and you know brought slaves um they they kind of created our economic system and now we're all expected <laughs> to keep it going as if this is the only natural way of doing things right that no growth is the only possible thing consume everything that the earth can give us all at once and and there should be no stipulations there should be no safety nets there should be no permits uh, uh, is is a is dangerous, and you see it in food systems around the world. I mean, one of the things that people who work in agriculture, the poverty around the world is is heartbreaking, um, and they're feeding us, um, and yet people who move papers around or build a good algorithm to buy stocks quicker than somebody else, you know, have more money than they'll ever need in their lives. And um, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is, you know, there are moments I was in Mexico harvesting corn and the, the, and this is a, a, a company that I think sells to the U S and the person who sort of managed the cornfield, or he was maybe the security guard, um, lived in a in a in a hovel with no running water and his kid had um a cut that was obviously gangrene and i was you know i had a little boy and uh anyway so i asked the dad i was like hey can we take him to the hospital and the dad was like no 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 and so i ended up just giving him whatever money we had and i was like this needs to get fixed we had a first aid kit we gave it to him we tried to do it but it was and then we harvested corn with him and he fed us and I took the corn to go make my show. And it was just like, 
wow, this is crazy that this world where we have so much to give um forget so many people yeah it was mm. it was uh, so there's another reason to write the book you know um the, uh, you peel the onion you know away and look there are people doing great things and i talk about that a lot in the book and but we are faced with you know when you un when you start undoing the onion at the core of it, at the end of it, is will humanity exist? That's the hardest thing. If we wipe out all the fish, will humanity exist? If we keep having seven years of drought and seven years of flood in Cape Town, will the farmers be able to make food? Will humanity continue to exist? Will Cape Town run out of water, which is what we were dealing with when we were there? Um, Malta, we go to Malta, incredible chef, uh, Stefan Hogan and um, Maltese travel around the world, bunch of great restaurants, ended up back where he came from. And we're sitting there. He was making this amazing snail dish where he had taken um, <clears throat> carob and uh, he had basically made dirt out of carob and put snails on it. It was almost like this, like he made a scene for me to eat um, and uh, really neat. And in it, we're just offhandedly talking and he's like, yeah, you know, it's been hard for farmers this season. It hasn't rained in 90 days. And I was like, it hasn't rained in 90 days. And we're going to make beer there. And I was like, so where are people getting their water? And he's like, well, we have a desalination plant. We, it was one of the first ones, the largest in like 1982. And they get about 60% of their water from there. Um, they do have a water table, but there are no rivers or streams or lakes on Malta. And Malta has a long history of people find the island, they build up, and then they have a huge crash because they run out of water. Um, and this has happened like four or five times the island has emptied. Um, there's a funny, uh, uh, well, I guess to them it wasn't funny, but Napoleon came through on his way to Egypt and he needed water for his soldiers. And he pulled up and he was like, give us your water. And the Maltese were like, no, we barely have any. And he was like, all right, Malta's mine. So he took Malta so he could take their water and then went on to, to Egypt. But um, so we went down into the water table and we went to the desalination plant, which is like an incredible, you know, model of human ingenuity. And um, what's happening though, is that the, the plant is allowing Malta to grow beyond, you know, it's, it's like getting too close to the sun, like Daedalus, right? So, um, and Malta happens to be on the most, um, uh, it's, it's, it's the largest shipping lane for oil in the world. And if an oil tanker um, broke, they would have two days of water. For the country because desalination the desalination plant wouldn't be able to, to uh, keep it together and the water table would get messed up so <clears throat> they are living on a tightrope um yeah it shows you how much of the planet is living literally well metaphorically from paycheck to paycheck yeah mm. yeah because we're not we are not consuming consciously we are saying Let's make a buck or, mm. I mean, in that case, and, and you can't blame, you know, 
They want tax revenue. They want, you know, Malt is asking for tech companies to move there. They really want the tourism. They need the swimming pools. Like you understand in this dog eat dog world what's going on. But a lot of the Maltese reporters are basically like water should be the only thing we're talking about. And the government's like, we can't hear you. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So we talk about that in our book too. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I'm I'm getting a sense from your stories and from what I already know that the the best way to explain it is it's like the world is in a relationship that's a little bit broken where we just hope that if we continue on, everything works out somehow. Right. But we're not actually prepared to have the tough conversations. No, we need to have the therapy sessions. Yeah. Let's we need get some to go. therapy sessions going here, people. <laughs> we we do. I think being um, a mediator is probably the most important job in the world right now to start opening up conversations. Uh, yeah, on, what on, you're doing, yeah. you know, mm. on your podcast, what I do on my show, in a sense. Mm. And I, so we got into the, you know, we got into the the darker side of stuff. But I also want to say that the book is very exciting and funny, and there are like, you know the lifeblood of, of uh, farmers and fishermen and the, the activists that we talked to. And, um, you know, in Malta or in, in Sardinia, I went to go get octopus and got caught in a cove and almost drowned in Kenya. I got attacked. I was trying to harvest honey and I realized that like I was with two. <laughs> this this doesn't Maasai. sound like it's going to end well. <laughs> does not end well. I'm with two Maasai shaman and, and the three of us are going to go harvest honey because they use, uh hives to protect cornfields from elephants because elephants mm. are bees so this is a way to sort of um and uh and we went down there to get the the, the honey and uh there's only two bee suits and the the maasai shaman are putting them on and i'm like where's my suit <laughs> and uh so three stings to the forehead and the next day i had to have a conversation i was interviewing richard leakey who's like this incredible legendary paleoanthropologist sadly he passed away but um to talk about uh what you actually what you started talking about is our brain development mm. <clears throat> and um anyway so my face is like <laughs> like this and he's staring at me <laughs> they shot from behind so you couldn't see my face in the interview and he's just every time we stopped talking he would be like what is wrong with this person but Leakey said something interesting. It goes back to one of your, your first comments, which was about how our brains develop. And I was like, I was all about fire, right? Like fire must have been the, and he was like, no, it was a sharp edged tool that was the biggest leap. And that was because you could, if you came upon a wildebeest, a dead wildebeest with your hands and teeth, you really couldn't do anything with it. Maybe you might be able to eat a little bit for yourself, but you certainly couldn't bring it back to your people. But if you had a sharp edge, you could take important calories back. And it also meant that you could start to develop uh, villages because you didn't have to be nomadic the whole time. People could go out and bring stuff back. And uh, I had never heard about that. I didn't know that sharp edges, he believes, uh, more important than fire, but was, you know, uh, I think he said the big step for him. It was seminal. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. How fantastic. So many stories. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel like you, because you would have probably gone back to your normal life 
in between shooting different episodes on different trips, uh, what were some of the really, like, grating aspects of normalcy when you came back from these trips? Well, like, oh, my I, gosh, we've got it all wrong. Like, surely that happened a lot. It did. I was the most grating person mm-hmm. to everybody around me because I was like, <laughs> we can't do this. This is insane. You have to be eating these. Wait. I'll show you. That is so funny that you say that because I I teach a lot of people how to reduce environmental toxin exposure and through my courses, one of the biggest challenges is the women come and they learn and they watch all the documentaries and they're part of like 50 Facebook groups to figure it all out. And then it's like, we can't do this. It's toxic to their family. And it's like literally (laughs) the worst marketing plan in the world if you want to get people to come and change with you. Yeah, uh, because yeah, you fun. repel everybody because they're like, oh my god, here they come! Like we're and gonna like, get the and like dinner parties. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you're doing it completely wrong. Let me explain it to you. The calendar um, dried up socially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I um actually, what's what's kind of cool about sort of where I roll, and my, a lot of my friends are also um, interested in uh, in this in in bettering sort of taking care of themselves taking care of the world take uh taking care of planet so <clears throat> i did actually have a lot of sort of compadres when i got back um i think sort of you i can't do the offhanded stuff like that i used to do um because now it means something, right? Like stopping at McDonald's to grab breakfast or lunch or whatever, which I don't do very often anyway, but that doesn't happen anymore. That's done. That's done for me. So my wife and I, on one of our first dates, when I met, but not one of our first dates, but the first time I ever met her family, um, we split a steak and her dad was like, well, you're not man enough to have your own steak. What is this? <laughs> And uh, I mean, now he would look back at that, David, and be like, please come back. Now it's like no rice, cauliflower rice, not doing this. I'll have the fish. Like, um, you and are then, so high maintenance. So high maintenance. Mm. But it's, it's bled into it's bled into them. So they like take. I learned that if you cook a potato or cook rice and then cool it overnight, or you, or you cook it with maybe a coconut oil and you cool it overnight, the um, calories and the sugar content goes down dramatically. Yeah, so and you get that beautiful resistant starch, which is good for our tummy bugs. Which is great for us. Mm. So that I learned on the journey. And that has been introduced into the family meals now. So they can have their rice, but they've got to do it a little differently. And they just started, the, I mean, I think it was like two weeks ago I went to the house and they were mixing cauliflower rice with rice, which is huge for them, you know? Mm. Um, And great variety, you know? And great variety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, I was the grading one. (laughs) Um, And I have one more question on, about your travels before uh, we wrap up this awesome conversation is what did you find like 
of all the places you visited, was there one that sat with you best, like that you felt like the most at home with or you felt the most idealistic about where you thought, gee, I wish it could be just like this? Wow, that. So the my first thoughts went to Kenya because mm-hmm. Kenya was one of those um, like bucket list moments in a, in a, in a show of bucket list moments. This, yeah, this yeah, the bucket list moment. Yeah, I wondered whether there was one that somehow managed to rise above the pack. I, I, we, there was a, a meal we made at a restaurant called um, Cultiva. And then we went across Kenya um, with the Maasai uh, harvesting um, along the way. And I like bartered for a goat and and we slaughtered a goat traditionally. And then we ended up up into the, we were in the Mara and then up into these sacred mountains that you had to like meet with the local um shamans to like allow you to go and then they actually took me harvesting uh uh, medicinal roots and and um there was a a root we made a chef made a um, creme brulee a vanilla creme brulee and there was a root up in the hills that tastes exactly like vanilla except it's not vanilla and so we went and and a lot of these herbs and and um, flavors that we were harvesting don't have even scientific names yet because no one's really you know investigated them and so it was just the shaman you know there was one moment we're picking these berries and he's like this is medicinal i'm like oh and uh and and i'm and i put it in my mouth and i'm chewing on it and i'm like what does it do he's like it makes you throw up Typical white person. Like, oh, yeah, let me have a taste of that. That's going to be good. Oh, crap. It was, it was the most harrowing <laughs> 20 minutes of my life. I was like, oh, God. Um, and then and then we also like we were in the in the forest up there and <clears throat> and and uh, buffalo are like one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous African animal. They kill more people than any other animal. And um, and we're walking around they, and, and the Maasai have these big spears to protect from buffalo and we're walking and these these buffalo cow pies are like coming quicker and quicker like we're heading right towards it's like a horror movie and I'm just like what is happening where is this buffalo right here um but uh anyway um the chef and I uh <clears throat> and 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 chef made this incredible cocktail that was um that was a uh, pomba, which is a homemade brew, honey brew. That's why I was getting the honey that I got stung with the bees, and um, and it's uh, and then he put, he flavored it with some of these herbs that, that are up on the on the mountain, and then put cat, which is a, it's a it's a it's a drug, it's like speed. Um, and and he put cot in there. And so you're drinking this pomba and chewing on the cot that gives you this like insane. So I'm sitting on the top of this mountain. We're cooking goat in uh, uh, with barley um, <clears throat> and drinking this uh, pomba. And it was, the sun is 
like there's it's cloudy, but there are these beams of sun like on the vista and um, <clears throat> cooking over a fire. It, it was nothing like it. Um, and then that night I went down and everybody who I had traveled with came up into the mountain. They like walked or drove. It was neat. People were just coming into the camp and um, an amazing safari company, Royal African. They travel. They don't set up shop it's a moving camp one of the last moving camps and they and they use um locals uh they work with locals so it's not bringing in people from out of the country um which is really neat and uh <clears throat> anyway so the shaman who who had <laughs> allowed me to eat the berry um <clears throat> Pamwat, he's the leader of that group of maasai and he gave me a fortune telling where i could ask three questions and um, and the first question was, would the forest survive? Because we had been seeing some illegal logging going on, and they were the the, um, the shaman are the leaders, and they were like flipping out, you know, because no one is supposed to be up on the sacred mountain doing that stuff. And so Pomwat said the forest would survive. And then I asked. This was in uh, 2020, in October. And I asked if Donald Trump would win the presidency. And uh, he had predicted Donald Trump in 2016. Someone had recorded him doing this and, and he had predicted it. So it was like a lot of drama and he was rolling the stones and we're sitting there and fires flickering. And, and he goes, he goes, no, he will not win, but there will be trouble. And that was, so that was pretty, that was pretty neat. That was a pretty neat experience. And uh, and Donald Trump didn't win and there was trouble. So maybe the forest will survive, which should be incredible because it's one of these places. They don't let you, when you go on the safari with them, you cannot bring your phone up there with you with GPS because they don't want people to know the location of where this sacred uh, mountain is. Just unbelievable. <clears throat> yeah. In fact, I, they told me a story that I think it was like one of the heads of Facebook or whatever gotten like a pitched fight with them about I need to bring my phone and they were like you can't and they <laughs> didn't allow him to bring his phone and then when he got up there he was like oh okay I understand why yeah you gotta have sacred spaces something has to be sacred right right, mm -hmm. right. David thank you so much uh thank I you. am this is lovely I am very yeah. excited for this show to be out in the world for your book to be out in the world uh it's, it's, i think it's playing in australia right now we sold it through we're mm, in, fantastic we're in 11 countries and it's going to be playing i think in january in australia so brilliant well we will be watching we will and the be book. watching mm -hmm. uh call bookstores and ask them to, to send it your way oh Everybody. so we don't have it in australia yet it it literally just came out in america okay. last Got it. tuesday we are we we got the numbers of our first week today, and my publisher said we we are the so we're we're on the bestseller list. Yay! And we are, congratulations. We are the number one travel book in America right now, which is kind of wild. So that's um, exciting, yeah. and I think for everybody who wants to who's craving that sense of connection to real food systems and real food purveying is going to be really inspired to. Yeah, and you know everyone can up level in tiny ways uh, in your everyday and 
you even talk about that in in the book. So I think it's a really exciting bridge and a starter for a lot of conversations. Thank you. You're welcome. There are also some good recipes in the back. So I'd love to hear what you think. Maybe. Oh, nice. We will be cooking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 Euro and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.